Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry, who's about to go to the hardware store any second now. (laughs) I wish. No, Jerry doesn't find that very funny. Yeah. Do you want to give the background there or just leave people wondering? Well, we need a trash can and a dimmer. Yeah. Background. We've been asking for, I feel like, months, but it can't be months because we haven't even been here that long. It's been like four days, but... What, what what's the problem here? Why isn't there any movement on this? <laughs> There's a Home Depot, a thousand uh, yards across from the our, street. Yeah, I specifically didn't mention their name, but yes, it is the closest. Well, one. an orange big box hardware <laughs> retailer. Right. <laughs> we could also support local business and go to an Ace instead. Yeah, or we could just talk about anesthesia <laughs> like we're supposed to. Ace is a big chain too, though. Yeah, but I think they're locally owned. Oh, right. Like uh, Henry's Ace Hardware. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I like Ace. Yeah, it's good stuff. Very helpful. Very, very knowledgeable staff. Mm-hmm. Good guys. Much more helpful than uh, some of the other big bucks that are orange and blue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. That was a great start to that was anesthesia. a weird one, man. <laughs> uh, Chuck. Yes. Do you know how to spell anesthesia? I have a I struggle. It's one of those. And in fact, uh, when you were out of the room uh, getting your coffee, uh-huh. Jerry was asking how to spell it. I know. And I think she spelled it right or maybe missed a letter. Missed, I'll bet you missed, missed an E, didn't you, Jerry? I think she put an A where there was supposed to be an E. Oh, well, I think that used to be an accepted spelling. You know how in some uh, distant times, like sure. the 40s yeah. or the 30s. Which Jerry identifies with. And like anesthesia would have been spelled with an A-E rather than just an E because there was another sound, the A-E. Yeah. It is a tricky one, though. Uh, Okay. Well, then my next question, Chuck. (laughs) Yes. Do you know what anesthesia means? I do. Uh, It's from Greek, like a lot of medical terms. And this uh, one stands for the loss of sensation. And uh, we'll talk about our personal experiences, I assume, but I've never been under general anesthesia. Yeah, the, the big daddy. Yeah, I've never been fully under. Have you? No. No. So neither one of us has had major surgery like that then? No. Knock wood. Yeah, because after doing some research on this, like, I don't know that I ever would want to. It's scary. Yeah, I mean. And let me just say also to anybody who is listening to this prior to undergoing a surgical procedure that requires general anesthesia. Yeah. We don't mean to scare you. No, because it's, uh, we'll talk about rate of death and and problems with it, which there are mm-hmm. still, but it's super safe now for the most part. Yes. But when you when you when I was reading this, I was like, man, what they're doing is is like bringing you toward death mm-hmm. and then stopping at a certain point. Yeah. And just letting you hover there with and then bringing <laughs> you out when they're getting yeah. ready to with a lot of like crazy, heavy, heavy drugs that are only slightly different from what they used in the like early history, which we're about to talk about. But it's really like, it's it's kind of nuts that, and they still don't know exactly how it works. No. And you the know? reason why they don't know how it works is especially, uh, we understand uh, local anesthesia and um, twilight sedation. Sure. What we don't understand is general anesthesia. And the reason why we don't understand is because we don't understand how consciousness works. Yeah. So how can we understand how unconsciousness works? Yeah. It's pretty weird. And we but, it, should, but it works. Yes. 
It definitely does. Mm-hmm. And although there are some risks associated with it, it is far, far, far better than the alternative, which is no anesthesia. Yeah. Which was the way it was for a very long time. I mean, anesthesia is a relatively recent thing. Yeah, or getting you super drunk or hitting you in the head and knocking you unconscious. Which is not... So knocking you unconscious, that qualifies as anesthesia, but it's still not medical anesthesia. Getting yeah. you drunk, yeah. giving you morphine, giving you marijuana, gymsum weed. Um, Mandrake. Yeah, rubbing stinging nettles on you to distract you from the pain of having your leg cut off. Belladonna. Using ice. All the stuff, these are soporifics, these are narcotics, these are just plain old distractions. Um, but they don't qualify as anesthesia. And the big difference, the the thing that was such a huge, huge progression forward um, with anesthesia is that it it doesn't just dull the pain. It dulls the pain. It takes away your consciousness. And it also prevents you from creating memories during this experience. It gives you amnesia. So it basically cuts a chunk out of your lifetime Mm -hmm. that as far as your subjective experience goes... Does not exist. It yeah. didn't happen. Like you were on the gurney going into the OR room and you wake up and you're on, in the hospital bed and you have stitches, but there is nothing there in between, ideally. Yeah, and, for general anesthesia. Right. And yeah. that's how we can conduct surgery. Because sure. before that, there was surgery, but it was very rare and it was very, very awful. Yeah, and you know we flew by some of those, but um, we did mention a lot of this uh, soporifics and narcotics that they use. Uh, they did knock you in the head. They did get you drunk. Um, in fact, in the mid 1840s, those were, you know, opium and alcohol were uh-huh. the the two go tos. If like, and a towel to bite on, I guess. Yeah, and uh, just to make you like be able to tolerate the pain, which didn't really help. No, I mean, I'm sure it helped. Uh, it dulled the pain, but it, it's not gonna do what you want, which is to kill it completely or knock you out or render you amnesiatic. Right. Amnesiatic? Sure. All right. Um, but the, the, so the, those were the two go-tos that they used. I mean, there were other ones too, like, um, bloodletting until a stupor or basically a coma was induced, like you lost so much yeah. blood. That's pretty dangerous. Sure. But these were the, these were the go-to, um, painkillers for surgery. And they still didn't work very well. But what's weird is in the 1840s, all that changed. Like, not one, not two, but three anesthesias uh, <laughs> came into, were basically discovered for medical use. Like, almost all at the same time. Yeah. Um, people now basically say Crawford Long, from right here in Georgia, mm-hmm. University of Georgia graduate, fellow bulldog. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the first. He uh, performed a uh, surgery, removed a tumor from a neck uh, from a Mr. Venable in uh, late March 1842, and also later did an amputation in uh, a childbirth with ether. And um, he was he was the guy, but he was you know it was pretty regional, and it, people just didn't know about it. Basically, I also get the impression that he wasn't as much of a self promoter as Dr. William Morton. Uh, yeah, he did, um, well, William Morton in 1846, we might as well go ahead and say, he demonstrated it for the first time in, like, a public surgical theater. Right. And said, here is what I'm doing, and this is new, and it's exciting, 
and I'm in Massachusetts, so I'm not some yokel in Georgia. <laughs> P- pretty much, yeah. and, and that's how he gained the acclaim. But yeah, I guess Crawford Long was able to prove that he'd done it. He'd used ether earlier. He's just like, it just wasn't being a big shot about it. I was just using it. <laughs> but you know, he discovered ether by hanging out with friends who were huffing ether at a party. Yeah. And supposedly he saw one guy run into a door and like cut his head open. And uh, Crawford Long, being a doctor, was like, are you okay? And the guy was like, yeah, what are you talking about? With like blood spurting out of his forehead. Yeah. And Crawford Long went, genius. Mm, ether. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, and he went on to uh, tell Congress about it, as did Dr. Charles Jackson, who said that he had done it before Morton as well. They both independently went to Congress. I was like, hey, man, I'm, I did that first. Right. So a bit of self-promotion. Yeah, but... Morton is the guy who gets who gets the credit. He's the one who really introduced it to the public. Well, gets the credit as the first demonstrator, yeah. Right. He's the one that you hear of, typically. Yeah. I would say Crawford Long, though. Yeah, I guess you're right. we got lots of hospitals named after him. At least one. Here. Although now, no, it's not Crawford Long anymore. Yeah, didn't they change it? Yeah, to Home Depot. <laughs> um... So a little bit later on, uh, there was a dentist, Dr. Horace Wells, who uh, used the first uh, dude to use nitrous oxide to pull teeth. And uh, then chloroform was used by Dr. James Simpson. And uh, these things, you know, you don't want to be using that, though. It's toxic. So Dr. Horace Wells actually is a pretty interesting story. It's where chloroform um, and uh, nitrous oxide converge. That's a beautiful place. So he tried, he extracted one of his own teeth on nitrous. Yeah. And was like, this is great. Did you read that history of hippie crack article? Yeah. So this all came after somebody, a guy named Joseph Priestley in the 18th century synthesized nitrous oxide. Yeah. And then very shortly after that, a uh, teenage prodigy named Humphrey Davy started huffing it. And he actually had a box built for himself. And was placed in it for over an hour once, just huffing nitrous oxide. I'm surprised he lived through that. I am too. You know? And he did. Because that stuff's dangerous. Yes, it is. But this guy was huffing it like crazy. There must have been like some escaping or other air getting in something. But he huffed it for like an hour, just for self-experimentation. By the time Horace Wells tried it on a tooth, um, there was a lot of confidence and understanding of nitrous oxide. Um he was able to successfully remove his own uh, own tooth when he demonstrated it. He didn't dose the patient properly, and the patient apparently cried out. And so Wells had staked all of his reputation on this demonstration, yeah. just failed utterly, and ended up on Skid Row in New York. Went on a chloroform bender and ended up throwing acid on a couple of women. Was what? put in yeah was put in jail and ended up committing suicide by slashing his femoral artery with the razor from his shaving kit, but he was on chloroform, so he was anesthetized, ironically, when he died. Oh, well, that's good. Isn't that weird? <laughs> yeah, what a strange history. But so the point is, in, in the 1840s, chloroform, nitrous oxide, and ether all emerged to form anesthesia. Yeah, and um, I mean, it would have come around eventually, but it's not so different today. Like I said, we're still using heavy-duty drugs to knock people clean out and monitor them so they don't die from it. Right. It's pretty crazy. Well, one other thing about the introduction of anesthesia is that it took another 50 or so years before the medical establishment said, yes, we need need to use this widely and and as part of standard 
and best practices. And part of that was because pain was seen as necessary. Mm-hmm. It was a sign that the patient was alive, yeah. was still vital. Um, there's a bit of a macho edge to it from what I understand. Uh, and then um, there was also a reluctance to draw attention to the fact that surgery is extremely painful. Yeah, because they didn't want people to not go to the doctor right. as much. Yeah, so it took like 50 years to catch on. So imagine being one of those patients where... The modern medicine is well aware yeah. of anesthesia, but hasn't adopted it yet. That's worse than being a patient before they understood there was such a thing as anesthesia. Yeah, or imagine being, because there was a lot of figuring it out along the way, mm-hmm. you know, as far as dosage and stuff like that yeah. goes. So there were a lot of, you know, unwitting guinea pigs, I guess. There were. Doc, that hurts. Well, take a little more. That or, Doc, I'm dead. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Like, you remember the castration episode we did? Oh, boy, do I. And they talked about how they would use opium as a an anesthesia, but yeah. it was very easy to accidentally overdose the little boys when you were removing their testicles. Sure. I think the same thing happened when you were cutting off a man's leg in the Civil War. Wait, removing testicles? Yeah, for castration. Not oh. circumcision, the castration. I thought episode. you said circumcision. Man, we've, we've done both. <laughs> yeah, but I, I thought, uh, I was like, man, I, I thought circumcision was something different. <laughs> no, that's, that means the circumcision has gone horribly awry. Yeah, man, we've, we've covered some gruesome stuff. We really have. You know? Uh, all right, well, I guess we'll take a break here and, uh, talk about some of the different methods, uh, of anesthesia right after this. All right, uh, before we broke, we teased you a little bit with the different types. And here we go. And up first is my favorite, Twilight Sleep. Uh, if you've had your wisdom teeth out or maybe uh, an endoscopy, um, there's plenty of procedures that use it. Uh, you might have had Twilight Sleep or conscious sedation. Right. Or Twilight Anesthesia. And um, I had some for uh, when I had my, my tooth replaced, mm-hmm. my front tooth. Mm-hmm. And it's always fun because it feels great going in. Right. You just relish those like 10 or 15 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and then it feels fun coming out because, you know, you don't know what's going on. Or it's more fun when you're picking up your uh, loved one. Right. Uh, I picked up Emily after her endoscopy and I went in and I don't know why I didn't think to have my video going already. But she was like, I think everyone's throwing a party for me. <laughs> I was like, what? She went, the people behind the curtain, they're throwing a party. I saw balloons. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very cute because they're like so out of it. Yeah. And when I came out of my wisdom teeth, I think I may have told this before, but I, uh, my friend told me that this particular doctor put bunny ears on you and took a picture because you're all puffed up and you have bandages around your face. <laughs> and I was like, that's not going to happen to me. I guarantee it. <laughs> and I remember distinctly seeing the, the lady come in with the bunny ears, put them on my head and get the Polaroid out and said, smile. And I just went, yeah, <laughs> gave a big smile. So that that actually that messed was, with you. That's well, that's definitely twilight sedation. Yes, because it was pretty fun. You are uh, out of it. You're but you're still conscious and you're still able to follow instructions. Yeah, but you don't know that, right? Like, when you wake up, quote unquote, you feel like I didn't. Nothing happened, but they're like, no, you were talking to us and stuff, right? So weird. It is very weird. And, um, the twilight sedation, they use virtually the same 
drugs in a lot of cases that they use for general anesthesia. Yeah, just not um, so much. Right, just smaller doses. So they'll use a sedative or something like that. Um, like ketamine. Right. Like we said, major drugs. I mean, if you've heard of, you know, falling into a K-hole, mm-hmm. uh, that's the same drug. Right, ketamine. Yeah. They but use, it's just crazy that, like, we're like, oh, back in the days, they used cocaine on people, and that's nuts. Right. Like, we use ketamine on people. <laughs> right. Big difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's, like, ketamine. They're, they might use something like Valium or Ativan or something like that. Um, they'll probably also use a dissociative, which apparently disconnects your nerves from your brain. Yeah, that's what Valium is. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, they'll use an, an analgesic, which is just another word for painkiller. That's so right. So you've got all these things working in combination, probably given to you intravenously, and you're a little bit wasted. But the point of twilight sleep and the thing that that um, that separates it from other types of anesthesia is that you are not so wasted that you can't breathe on your own, <laughs> yes. that your heart beat. Or your heart can't beat on its own. Right. It needs to be, you'll be monitored. Yeah. But really, they've given you such a low dose of this cocktail of, of chemicals that you're, you're still able to do things like smile when the, the dentist puts sure. bunny ears on you. Yeah. Too, uh, I also remember, um, when uh, I woke up, I remember seeing a poster that said locomotive lasagna on the wall. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, it didn't say that unless, they went so far as to like switch out posters, yeah, to mess with you. I could see that because this Dennis clearly had a sense of humor. He yeah, was putting bunny ears on people. It's like Tim Watley from Seinfeld. Yeah, but I was a little kid, you know. I, you know, I'd never even had a drop of alcohol, so I never had my head altered in any way. Right. So I was like, "This is crazy." Did you start going to the dentist every Friday? <laughs> I did. Uh, I had all fifty wisdom teeth removed. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I know there's another one in there. Uh, the only, uh, the other good thing about, um, the twilight sleep is it's not going to have the after effects as general. Like, um, you probably won't be nausea, uh, have nausea or dizziness or vomiting, maybe a little bit. Right. Like they will give you a prescription probably, mm-hmm. but, um, you probably won't need to use it. Right. You know? Yeah. Anti-nausea stuff. So that's, uh, that's twilight sleep, aka procedural sedation. I don't know if we ever called it that. That's the clinical term for it. Twilight sleep is the prettier name for it. Yeah. Um, then there's also a local anesthetic, which is the other common type of anesthesia, um, where basically a, is a small area or a specific region of the body is um, basically numbed. Yeah, that's when you get the, the worst thing that can happen to you in life, which is uh, shots into the gum, mm. a needle in the gum at mm-hmm. the dentist. Mm-hmm. Which is why the dentist will frequently use a topical, yeah, um, uh, a topical anesthesia. It helps a little, right? Uh, so that they'll it will numb your gums when they put the the needle in. Yeah, they'll put like that gel, and that'll numb mm-hmm. it a little bit. Or if you're getting uh, sometimes like an IV in the arm, they'll spray it with the cold stuff, right? And that all helps for sure. It does. You'll still feel the pressure of yeah. the needle going into your jaws, but you don't feel the pain, right? Mm-hmm. And the 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 reason why these things work is uh, they the a local anesthetic actually goes to the area it's delivered to and blocks the nerve receptors. It actually keeps your potassium and your sodium ions um, from firing. Right? That's right. Which means that it's not conducting electricity, which means that your nerves aren't capable of passing along the sensation of pain to your brain. They're just shut down. 
Yeah. That's what a local anesthetic does. And if you pay attention, local anesthetics all end in ain. Yeah. And for a pretty good reason. Like lidocaine or novocaine, even though they don't use novocaine that much anymore. Um, it's a derivative of cocaine, and cocaine has a topical numbing effect, and they used to use it yes. to do that. Right. And then they said, why is everybody showing up to the dentist all the time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they said, oh, yes, it's because of the cocaine. So let's figure out a, a, a synthesized version of it. And they came up with Novocaine, Lidocaine, all that. Um, and they stopped using Novocaine apparently because there were a lot uh, – the potential for adverse reactions was greater. Yeah. Um, but people still do have allergies to um, local anesthetics yeah. once in a while. But it turns out – it's not the local anesthetic itself. It's not the Novocaine. It's not the lidocaine. What it is is um, when you use a local anesthetic, it has the effect of vasodilation, which means yeah. that it makes your um, blood vessels relax, which lowers your blood pressure, um, which is good, but it also is not so good. So they add epinephrine, which is a vasoconstrictor, and it actually makes the uh, local anesthetic work better. So if you get a local anesthetic, you're getting the local anesthetic, like lidocaine, mm-hmm. mixed with epinephrine and a preservative to keep the epinephrine fresh. And it's the preservative that you're having the adverse reaction to. Yeah. And again, just a, a well-balanced cocktail mm-hmm. to uh, give you exactly what you need. Um, local is going to wear off in a few hours. It depends on how much you have. Um, when you leave the dentist, you know, you'll still have your mouth numb for a while and, uh, they always warn you not to eat or talk too much because, um, you can accidentally bite your tongue or your cheek and not know it. Yeah. Uh, which actually happened to me recently and I did bite my cheek. Man, a lot. Yeah. Bled a little bit too. You all right? Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> so it's not just, um, it's not just dental that you're going to get like a, a local anesthetic. You could also be given a local anesthetic for what's called awake brain surgery. What? Yes. So in some some types of brain surgery, you need to be conscious. You can't be right. unconscious. They need to keep uh, track of what the brain's doing, and they need it to be in a conscious state. So they will give you some drugs where you're not necessarily, like you're you might be sedated in the... Like you might be on a little bit of Valium or something like that, but you're not, you're still conscious, you're still able to respond yeah. to questions, but they give you a local anesthetic because they take the top of your head off right. and work on your brain. I think it's in Hellraiser. There's like a awake brain surgery is shown. Yeah, I think I've seen that in another movie too. Yeah. Um, yeah, because they need to be able to ask you things like, uh, in this nuts? Yeah, can you believe that your brain is exposed? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You're like, uh-uh, this is weird. <laughs> Um, are we on to regional? I believe so. Uh, local, uh, regional anesthesia is sort of like local, but it covers a wider area of your body. Um, so like if you need your whole leg numbed for an operation, um, and not just like a small portion of your leg, yeah, that would be regional. Uh, it's also called a nerve block. Basically, because they're just taking a single nerve or a bundle of nerves and blocking that. Right. They're going after like one of the big daddies rather than yeah. a little one. But again, localized. Um, like if, if, you know, women who have given birth sometimes will get an epidural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what that is. It is injected uh, via catheter into the epidural space in the lower back. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, directly into the spine, which also can happen with a spinal block. Right. Right into that cerebrospinal fluid. Yep. Which is about as direct as you can get. 
And if you get a C-section or maybe hernia surgery, and that's when they want you awake again um, during the surgery. Like with epidurals, Chuck, I was wondering, so an epidural, it's in the space outside of the spinal column. Yeah. Um, but it's used to numb you, you from the waist down, like when you're giving birth or something like That's that, right. right? And it's actually a catheter is introduced and a continuous yeah. IV cocktail is given to your, into your, almost your spine. Yeah. But not into the spine. No. Yeah. That would be a spinal. That's um, right. I wondered how do they make it so it's, it, it's your waist down that's getting numb. Why isn't your waist up? Oh, like how does the how do they know the path is going downward? Yes. So I looked it up, and it turns out it doesn't always. Yeah. Sometimes it can reverse and numb you from the waist up. In which case you're in like that's a problem because your yeah. breathing can stop, um, your heart can stop. There's a bunch of stuff that can stop. But apparently. It's extraordinarily rare, but it can happen where, like, the the intended area is reversed when they give you an epidural. There can also be complications from the epidural um, that aren't great. Um, So hopefully that doesn't happen if you're giving birth. Right. Well, same same with the spinal as well. Like, there there are complications, like, you can get a... um, a meningeal infection yeah. or an abscess, something like that. It happened or- to a friend of ours. That's why I got dodgy. I didn't want to say it on the air. Oh, I got you. Yeah. I'll tell you after. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just write it down. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I talked about the spinal block. Um, there's a little bit more risk, like we said, than local, obviously, uh, like seizures and heart attacks. Um, and sometimes it doesn't give enough pain relief and you have to move on to general. They're like, Doc, this ain't working. Right. Um, can you just knock me out? Yeah. Because some patients want to be awake, and some patients don't. And sometimes they will defer to you on that. Who will defer to who? The doctor. And oh, yeah. Will be like, sure. do you want to be awake for this or not? Especially during childbirth, too. Sure. Like, uh, give me the drugs. Give me the drugs. Yeah. Is or a, is a common refrain. Yeah. Or I want to be awake, at least. Um, but give me the, the epidural. Yeah. Uh, like, I'll go in thinking natural childbirth is the way to go, and then I change my mind. Give me the drugs. Which is, hey, that's your right. Yeah. Sure. Given birth, you should do it however you want to. Totes. At home, in a tub. Uh, Water In birth. a boat, with a goat. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, so, Chuck, you, you had a pretty great segue that we just trod all over into general anesthesia. Yeah. Again, the, the big daddy. Is right. what I think most people call it. That's when you're put under. And that is when you are out. You don't remember anything. You're asleep. You're co- you're unconscious. And that's the one where they don't completely understand how it works, which is a little scary. It is a little scary. Yeah. Um, and there have been people who've tried to figure out how to quantify it um, using magical boxes and transmagnetic, t- transcranial magnetic simulation, stimulation. Yeah. And I flubbed that one. The thinking cap? Yeah. Um, but ultimately we just, we don't know. So there's, there's a, there's a general idea, basically a working theory. And that is that, um, anesthesia, the drugs that we use, and it's a a bunch of different ones working in conjunction, but they depress the activity of the spinal cord. Yep. So you're paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Um, the brainstem reticular activating system, which is basically, they think responsible for sleepiness and wakefulness Mm -hmm. that's stimulated. Or depressed, depending on your way of looking at it. And then um, your cerebral cortex 
is affected as well. So you're not thinking, you're not forming memories, you're not um, making associations with any of this. And all of that in conjunction with one another comes to anesthesia, general anesthesia, which is utter and complete unconsciousness. That's right. And it can last a few hours or up to six hours um, if you're having like serious, complicated surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a limit. They can't just be like, this is a 12-hour surgery. Um, yeah, I thought there were surgeries like that where they're like, the surgery lasted 72 hours, but the guy's yeah, face was successfully transplanted. Yeah, that is true. So um, how do they do that? Because it does know, seem actually. really dangerous to yeah. keep someone under general anesthesia for that long. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't. I meant to look into that. Someone will let us know. Sure. We'll follow up on that for sure. Uh, if you are going to be put under general anesthesia, you don't just walk in and start huffing the gas. <laughs> uh, there, are a, There's a lot of work that goes into that. Um, you have to be invited. You have to be invited by your... You have to get a... Uh, a party invite from your anesthesiologist. <laughs> um, you will meet with them, and uh, he or she will basically ask you a bunch of questions about your lifestyle and your medical history. Are, are you a natural redhead? Yeah, because uh, we covered that in the redhead episode. You might need a little more. Yeah, are you a little kid? Are you? Yeah, I can tell by looking. Yeah, because little kids' livers process these drugs a lot faster, so they need uh, a higher dose, basically. Yeah. Um, are you a huge alcoholic? Not, well, depends on what you say, sir. Are you a heroin <laughs> addict? Not anymore. So, like, the, depending on the answers to these questions, they're going to need to adjust your dose, depending. Do you have uh, low bl- blood pressure, high blood pressure? Yeah, and this is where you want to be super honest about your drinking and drugs. Yeah, if you're a heroin addict, you need yeah. to fess up. You can be like, hey, man, can you be cool and keep a secret? Yeah, don't, like, lie like you do to your shrink. <laughs> right. You know, you really want to be honest because you want this to work well and be safe. Um, after they have all that, they're going to basically... Um, put together your your program uh-huh. on what you're going to need, and then they're going to tell you not to eat because if you eat before you go under anesthesia, mm-hmm. you can aspirate and basically breathe in what's in your stomach. Right. So this is not everybody believes this any longer, supposedly. About eating before surgery? There's, I, what I understand is that when... There are so few cases of aspiration under mm-hmm. anesthesia, especially twilight sedation. It's because you're not eating. That, well, no, oh yeah, that's a pretty good, <laughs> that's a good point I hadn't thought of. Yeah. Um, but apparently, well, yeah, you, you just answered that question. What are you going to say? Well, from what I understood, there was a study that looked at all these different, um, the cases of aspiration and yeah. found it's very rare. And they concluded that the danger, the potential danger of aspirating under sedation is low enough that it's it, it it's outweighed by the benefits of eating. Because if oh, you really? don't eat and you undergo sedation on an empty stomach, which is what they want you to do, it, it's a lot harder on your system. You're much more likely to be nauseated, to vomit afterward, to be dizzy. Yeah. Whereas if you eat something, you can your body can process these drugs a little better. So are they advising people to eat now? I think that they're starting to get to that point, but I, I don't believe it's like current widespread practice. Yeah, I don't think I would... I don't know. Maybe I'm superstitious. I don't know if I'd be chowing on a burrito before I go in for my heart surgery. Well, just for the surgeon's benefit, I think <laughs> you might want to avoid burritos before going under, before being knocked unconscious. Yeah, you're right. Um, 
You will be wearing a breathing mask uh, when you're under general anesthesia um, or a breathing tube because uh, you basically your your muscles are so relaxed that your airways uh, airways won't stay open. Yeah. So that's a little creepy in itself. Uh, yeah. Um, and they're going to be mon- monitoring lots and lots of things while you're under. They are in the room and probably have an assistant in the room with them to monitor all this stuff. Right. Like uh, blood pressure, uh, heart rate, O2 levels, um, CO2 levels, temperature, uh, brain activity. And there's even a little alarm if your O2 level drops, mm-hmm. which is great. I think they should have an alarm for everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the more alarms, the better in that case. Uh, and I guess we should talk about the four stages um, of general anesthetic. Yep. Stage one is the induction stage or the one you were talking about, those 15 seconds where you're like, mm. Pure bliss. Right. <laughs> uh, and then uh, sta- that quickly moves to stage two, which is the twitchy stage, uh-huh. where you're just kind of like, well, twitching. It's your body going like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. What is this? And then you move quickly to stage three, which is the stage that they're after, where you're not twitching anymore. You're not conscious any longer. And you are under a state of general anesthesia. You are anesthetized. Right. Uh, and this is where you want to be. But there is, like you said, a fourth stage. Yeah, you don't want to go there. No, that's the overdose stage. Yeah. And once you're in this stage, it, it is now a medical emergency. And you have to be managed, brought out of before you suffer brain damage or yeah. death or all sorts of other problems. Yeah, and I, I remember when I read this the first time, I thought, well, why did they even have this fourth stage? <laughs> I don't think they... <laughs> I think it's just there. Yeah, but it's, you know, anesthesia is a thing. It doesn't mean, like, if you don't have a, a great anesthesiologist, there can be that fourth stage. Sure. You I know. think even with a good anesthesiologist yeah, having true. a bad day. Things can happen. You know? Um, oh, I hit a squirrel. <laughs> and now this guy's dead. Uh, when you do go under, you are, um, like I said, going to get the gas or an IV or both. Um, there are lots of different drugs that they will combine. Again, ketamine, Valium, sodium pentothal. Well, the go-to is they're going to knock you out first with the IV, usually, and almost across the board, it's propofol, Michael Jackson's milk. That's right. Uh, And that's what they do to initially knock you out, and then they're going to put- so sad that he actually needed that to sleep. And it didn't even work, is the crazy thing. Like, he was so wound up that That even propofol wouldn't work. Unbelievable. It is sad. So sad. What a sad way to go. Um, You might also get a muscle relaxer. Uh, to make sure that paralysis really takes hold. Yeah, and if this is all kind of familiar, go back and listen to our um, lethal injection episode because that oh, is yeah. stage four and yeah. te- technically <laughs> stage five and general anesthesia yeah. is lethal injection. Yeah, that's again, that's why this is so nuts is mm-hmm. they're, they're almost killing you. Yeah. Well, maybe that's overstating it. But they're they're not bringing you to the brink of death. But they want you close enough to where you're out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, after surgery, um, you don't just get up and dance out of the room. You're going to go to the PACU, the post-anesthesia care unit. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to keep getting monitored. You're going to uh, be dehydrated and cold because you're <laughs> heading toward death. Right. So they're going to warm you up with some warm IVs. There are also some drugs that they've started to use now. Um, I had some oral surgery, and Yumi picked me up, and I can't remember any of the stories or whatever. Oh, really? But I remember going from being out to just being totally with it. Sure. 
And apparently I've been given a drug that's uh, like a reverse sedation drug. Oh, to wake you up? Yeah, there's one called flumazenil yeah. and another called naxalone. And it's just basically, they also use them for overdoses of certain kinds in the sure. ER. Yeah, yeah. But they can use them post-sedation uh, to get you going again pretty quickly. Did they and, stick it directly into your heart, boy, through your breastplate? A, yeah, and you just <laughs> sit up and inhale deeply. Wow. It's, I don't uh, think I had that when I had mine. Yeah. Oh, well. I'm cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I still couldn't eat ahead of time, though. Oh, really? Yeah. But you did anyway. You're like, I read that it was fine. Chuck said I could have a burrito. <laughs> um, you might actually get a little morphine, too, for the pain after you're recovering. Afterward, yeah. yeah. Um, but you might also uh, have those side effects like we talked about with the vomiting and nausea. Um, and you may be pretty out of it, you know? Yeah. You might fall over if you get up to use the bathroom. There is get a, some help. There's a probably the worst potential side effect of anesthesia possible is something called anesthesia awareness and we'll oh, i would say that. death but we'll talk about both of those okay yeah. all right we'll get into both after this so chuck uh we're going to talk about anesthesia awareness but we should probably talk about anesthesiologists first right yeah, there's um, many levels of uh, anesthesiology jobs. Okay. <laughs> you can be an anesthesiologist, <laughs> full-blown, which is, means you've gone to pre-med, undergrad, you've gone to med school, you have uh, done your two-year residency, sometimes three. 95% of your income goes to malpractice insurance? Does it really? I would guess. <laughs> Not that much, but a lot. Yeah. Um and you can, uh, I didn't see where you had to be certified, but you were eligible to take the ABA exam. Uh, I think in that, I think if you want to be a physician anesthesiologist, you actually have to be certified. All you have to do is be able to say anesthesiologist <laughs> correctly. Actually, that's not true. It says 75% of physician anesthesiologists are certified. And most of these physicians anesthesiologists, um, do a one year of specialty training as well mm-hmm. um, with either uh, there are several different subspecialties like hospice and palliative medicine, uh, critical care medicine and pain medicine. So basically just it's almost like postgraduate graduate school. Right. Or you can be an assistant, uh, which means you have your four year undergrad in pre-med and then you've gone through an accredited uh, program and then take an exam. Or you can be a nurse anesthesia. Uh, anesthesiast, anesthetist, anesthetist, anesthetist. Man, I sound like such a dope. It's those are some tough words, man. I know it's There's okay. A lot of stuff going on in there. A lot of T's and H's and S's. Yeah, uh, that means you're a registered nurse who has completed um, a uh, training program, uh, which lasts two to three years. You're going to have to have your BS degree, and at the end of one year of practice experience, um, is when you go through that training program and take an exam. So, again, many years. Mm-hmm. It's like serious, serious stuff. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I, I want to, you know, I want to be a doctor, but I don't want to go through all the schooling, so I'll just be an anesthesiologist. I want to have access to the finest <laughs> drugs available on planet Earth. Right. No, it's still serious. Like, you're a doctor, you know. It's well, not, you're, It's not like you're any lesser of a... You're a nurse. What do you mean? 
An anesthetist, you said, was a nurse. Right? Oh, no, I'm just talking about all of those jobs require lots and lots of schooling. It's not like the easy way out. I certainly hope not. No, no. It's a very serious uh, job. Okay, so it is a very serious job. Again, we said you are being brought to the brink of death or stupor or unconsciousness or whatever you want to call it, and then brought back without any side effects or as, as few side effects as possible. That's right. And certainly no lasting side effects. But there is something, there's a pernicious uh, syndrome that doctors have been aware of, that anesthesiologists have been aware of at least since the 60s, which is called anesthesia awareness. And basically, anesthesia awareness is where you are given anesthesia, mm-hmm. which includes a paralytic, which means you can't move your body at all. Yeah. Uh, and your eyes have been taped shut, so you can't see, but you are conscious. You are yeah. aware during surgery. So your the painkillers would have probably worked too, but something went wrong, and you're not unconscious. So you're able to form memories. You're able to hear the doctors talking about you like you're a piece of meat. You're able to hear the cutting, the squishing, the tearing of your organs being moved around. You can smell the singed hair yeah, and it, cauterized flesh. You're able to feel genuine fear. In some cases, if the pain reliever hasn't worked, you're able to experience this excruciating pain. And you're not able, as badly as you want to, to alert anybody on the surgical team. Yeah, it's like you're locked in. That you're, yes, that you're experienced. It's, yes, you're, it's like performing surgery on a locked in person. Yeah. Without any kind of painkiller or anything like that. Yeah, I didn't know your eyes were taped shut during surgery either because, um, you never see that on TV shows. Yeah. Do you? I've never noticed that. Uh, I, yeah, I don't, I've seen it before, but I'm I probably on like one of those, like, remember they used to have real surgeries on, Oh, Maybe yeah. Discovery in the early days? Yeah, back when they were uh, doing stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I looked into that, though, and um, that's for a couple of reasons. Obviously, to keep the eyes from drying out, because apparently eyelids do not close in 59% of patients when under general anesthesia. They'll just be staying wide open. <laughs> it's creepy. So it's to keep the eyes from drying, and I didn't realize this, is to prevent corneal abrasion. Apparently, that had been or can be a real problem. Um, even if your surgery's not on your eyes, there's just a lot of activity around your face, like a stethoscope. Oh, yeah, can yeah. scratch your eye. Or yeah, just, that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of stuff can happen, yeah. so we'll tape your eyes shut. So they, they tape it shut, so you can't see, but again, you can still hear, you can still feel, and even if you're not feeling pain, you can still feel the pressure. Remember, even with like uh, local anesthetic, you can't feel the pain, but you can feel the pressure of the needle going in your jaw. This is the same thing with like stomach surgery or your heart being taken from your chest or what have you. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people, apparently studies have found since the 60s that about two out of every thousand patients or yeah, surgeries yeah. will experience anesthesia awareness. Which, yeah, they said that's super rare. That's not rare enough for no, me, man. No, no. I was hoping to see like one in a hundred thousand. Or a hundred million. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's like two out of every thousand, and supposedly 70% of people who experience anesthesia awareness suffer from clinical PTSD, which is five times more than soldiers returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And we're getting this stuff from an Atlantic article called yeah, Awakening really by Joshua Lang. Just go read it. It's a, a, it's a really great article. Yeah, they gave this one case. There's a bunch of cases in there, but this one, um, Sherman Sizemore Jr. was a Baptist minister 
and coal miner, former coal miner. He's 73, and he had exploratory uh, laparotomy. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. In 2006. And any kind of exploratory surgery is, you know, it's not fun because they're basically looking around for stuff well, and they, moving things around. Yeah, they cut away, like, the flesh and this belly fat and all that stuff, and we're looking um, at the, the film that holds your guts in place. Yeah, they're poking around yeah. in there. And um, he, of course, had uh, interoperative recall. Which is another term for anesthesia awareness. That's right. And he um, basically... His family couldn't understand what was going on with them. You know, a lot of times you'll have these bad dreams, these nightmares about blood and people coming at you and trapping you. And mm-hmm. it's it's severe PTSD. And he eventually uh, killed himself, even though he had no history of psychiatric illness. Within two weeks of his surgery. Yeah, shot himself dead. And mm-hmm. um, his family had settled with a lawsuit uh, because they claim that no one even said that this could happen. Or you should seek counseling or anything like that. Yeah. So sad. Oh, yeah. It's very sad. Supposedly, people who suffer from PTSD, from anesthesia awareness, um, almost across the board can't lay down and sleep. They have to sleep in chairs because laying down would yeah. uh, stir memories up. of yeah being on the OR table. It's a, uh, yeah. And again, anesthesiologists, philosophers, any kind of scientists, they don't know how this is happening because yeah. we don't understand consciousness, so we don't understand the mechanism that produces unconsciousness. And then even further, we don't understand when that mechanism that's supposed to produce unconsciousness fails to produce unconsciousness, and someone remains conscious and experiences anesthesia awareness. Yeah, I would think there's got to be some fail-safe for this there's by none. now. Like, uh, untape the eyes midway and say, like, blink if you can feel me, right. feel this. But you're, you've been paralyzed. You can't move. You you're, can't even blink? Paraly- no. It seems like they should, there's got, I mean, I don't know. It seems like there's got to be something they could do. Like there's a machine that has to breathe for you because yeah. your lungs can't even move. Well, and that's why they tape your eyes shut to begin with, I guess, because you can't blink. Yeah. That's creepy that people, like, their eyes remain open even <laughs> when they're unconscious. Yeah, I wonder. It's like the mom from Throw Mama from the Train. Like, even if you can't blink, I wonder if there's any kind of sign, like, that you could give. Well, so in this Awakening um, article, they talk about there was a, a guy who, like, came up with this box that was meant to, it gave, like, a, a number between zero and a hundred that supposedly reflected a level of consciousness yeah. to be used in the operating room for anesthesia so that the anesthesiologist could be confident that the, somebody wasn't experiencing anesthesia awareness and they found that it doesn't really work. So there are, there are people who have undertaken this right. quest to, to basically show somehow there's right. some outward sign of whether someone's conscious or not, but we just, haven't licked it yet. Yeah, I can't believe there's not some sort of machine that could pick up on that. But they've tried, or maybe they're just like uh, it's, a, it's two in every thousand. Yeah, I can live with those numbers. <laughs> and that, that's no, that's not. That's way too common. Um, Man, that scares me to death. Yeah, well, you said that's the worst thing that can happen. I vote for death as the worst thing. Yeah. Um, in the 1940s, uh, for every one million patients who had full anesthesia, 640 of them died. Uh, by the 80s, that was down to four for every million, which to me, that's good and rare. Four out of every million. Yeah, but yes. that number is actually scarily on the rise since the 1980s. Um, 
a German uh, publication called Deutsches uh, Arzeblatt. It's the German Medical Association's um, science journal. And they said that uh, worldwide death rate is on the rise to about seven now per million. And the number of deaths within one year after general anesthesia is one in 20, or if you're over 65, one in 10. What? And that's within the year after. Oh, yeah, but even still, that's not good. No, and it, that doesn't necessarily mean that's due to the anesthesia because they make the point that it's not like the quality of anesthesiological care is different. It's that older people are having surgery these oh, days. Oh, that's, that's a good point. So that is a very good point. Yeah, that's probably what it's due to. But um, correlation is not causation. Yeah, I mean, they said for a patient to actually die on the operating table is super, super rare. Yeah, uh, from anesthesiology. Um, it's overdose. apparently much more common to experience anesthesia awareness. Two in every thousand. Why don't they say one in five hundred? Yeah, really. They're trying to, you know, pump They're it like, up. Oh, two in every <laughs> thousand. And they yeah. say it like that too. One, one in, in five hundred. I know. Nah. And that's not one in 500 patients, it's one in 500 surgeries. There's a lot more surgeries than patients. Yeah, and you know, when you go, when you take your, uh, pets in, they undergo general anesthesia too for surgery. And yeah. They always say, like, your pet could die. Yeah. Like, it's rare and it happens this often, but, um, it can happen and, you know, you have to sign the waivers and that's always, especially if an, if an older animal. Yeah. It's a little bit of a, a quandary you're in, you know? Yeah. Whether or not to get the surgery, is it worth the risk? Sure. All that stuff. That's all I got. I got nothing else, too. Ta-da. That's anesthesia. If you are feeling confident about spelling that word correctly, go ahead and type it into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And I said search bar, everybody, which means it's time for listener mail. Uh, This one I'm going to call ESP. We heard from a lot of people on this one so far. Yeah, but it wasn't as bad as I thought. No. Um, hey guys, just listen to ESP. It was great as usual. Your podcast helped me get through my workday and make me laugh as I learn new and random things. Uh, with regards to ESP or whatever people want to call it, I don't know if I believe in it exactly, but I do strongly believe that some individuals are much more intuitive or connected than others. Uh, and here's an example. When I was 11, my mother died. Uh, we were living in Vancouver at the time and she had died at home. We had not yet called any of the family to notify them until a few hours later, but about 15 minutes after she passed away, My paternal grandmother, who was in Hong Kong, called and said, Is Lana okay? I suddenly got a very strong and bad feeling about her, and I thought I should call. Uh, And again, we hadn't told anyone yet, and it had only been 15 minutes. Uh, My grandmother has always been very intuitive. It always felt like no matter where our family was, she always somehow had her eye on us uh, in a comforting way, not creepy. (laughs) (laughs) She points out. Uh, She was devout and practicing Buddhist her whole life, and it is partly her devotion to Buddhism somehow makes me believe that she was a soul deeply connected to the rest of the world. Uh, yeah, kind of cool. Yeah. Explain well, that. I think we pointed out in the ESP podcast that probably the likeliest explanation is that the Buddha hands it out to his most devout followers. There you have it. Looks like Granny. Uh, I don't have her last name. But that is uh, from Joy. and Granny, can- Granny in Hong Kong. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah. Even though Joy is in uh, Australia, Can Canberra. Canberra. Canberra, Australia. Anesthesia. Hong Kong. <laughs> Joy. Right. Thanks, Joy. Yeah, thanks a lot, Joy. That's a good story. Uh, and we got some like that, actually, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Probably more of those than ESP doesn't work. Yeah. 
We got very few of those. I was really surprised. Yeah, I thought we did a good job of, of laying it out there. Uh, yeah. Well, if you want to share a good family story like Joy did, you can uh, tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And you can visit our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 